So how many of you have a college education? I just made a plastic nativity scene light up and you cheered. That's awesome. It is that time of year, nativity scenes, presents, family, tax cuts for people who don't need them. Mm. Is your heart warm like mine? I am so glad you came to my annual Largo Christmas show. This is always like to me a highlight and um, how many of you are not from LA? Yeah, all right. Okay, so some of you are visiting and some of you are from here and that's just fantastic. And oh, all uh, a bunch of money from tonight we're giving to Charity Water, which is this organization I've been involved with for years where 100% of everything you give goes to help get people drinking water who don't have access to clean water, and I passionately believe in what they're doing. And so just by coming here tonight, you helped. I guess actually this crowd, you probably will do close to a well in a village somewhere. So um, yeah, that's what we do. Hopefully year round, but at Christmas, you know, we amp it up a bit. We're gonna talk about that in a little bit, by the way, because <laughs> what I always like to do at this time of year is tell the Christmas story because I've been struck with how many people have never heard it, other than some sort of neutered, sanitized version that Fox News is defending, which you just go, I don't know, I think it might be more. Um, so I want to tell you like, like a perspective on the Christmas story. Um, the great philosopher Dallas Willard said that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. Something can be so close and so familiar, and you're so like, oh yeah, I know what that is. And someone's like, well, what is it? Well, it's so close that it becomes unfamiliar and then you begin to sort of despise it. And so uh, I love going back and telling versions of the Christmas story because uh, what strikes me is how I feel like it's more relevant than ever when you get a little context on it. So we'll do that in a minute. But first, we, we need to have uh, Christmas music. Are we clear on this? <laughs> and uh, I heard about this band, my new favorite band, earlier this year called Joseph. Are there any Joseph fans here? <laughs> Hi, welcome to the first annual Joseph Largo Show. <laughs> ah, yes. Now we know how this is going to work. So uh, I have a podcast called The Robcast, because what would you call it? And um, they came on and set up in our back house and sang, and we talked. And then as they were leaving, I was like, you know, I do this. Largo show at Christmas, it'd be so much fun if you all came, thinking like that was the half court behind the back. And they were like, okay. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Didn't take too long to convince us. Yeah. And I mean, you can't, it's kind of, they're in the dark, but they're beautiful people, as you can see. <laughs> so uh, you'll do a few songs? Yes. And then I'll talk sure. a little bit, and then you'll do another one? Please. Yes. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, Joseph. <laughs>
You did it all. Uh, this is a <laughs> this is an unreal experience for us. We've loved this place for a long time, and we have appreciated Rob Bell for a long time as well. So, um, we'd love to play you a song that we wrote this season.
way better, right? <laughs> Anybody else like, that's what I needed, apparently. And now I can do my thing. Let's just take a moment right now. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> so I think if you w had come from somewhere else and, and somebody, and you said you have something called holidays, uh, what are holidays? And you'd be like, well, we have this one called Thanksgiving, this one called Fourth of July, where we sing this song about bombs. Anyway, and then, <laughs> and then we have this really big one called Christmas. And you'd be like, oh, really? Well, what's that? It's like the biggest holiday. It's like the biggest thing of the year. And you buy presents. And you'd be like, well, it's, it's about Christmas, you know, the birth of Christ. And, and if you were to be like somebody from outside the whole thing was like, well, well, tell me more about it. And you'd be like, well, like in America, we take a day to remember the birth of a baby in the Middle East to teenage parents on the run because of a census and there's some donkeys and shepherds. <laughs> if you were just to say, of all the stories that have endured, <laughs> this one's a little, are you with me on that? <laughs> I mean, if you just look at it just objectively, culturally, why did this story endure? And then you look across the world, it's endured in lots and lots of cultures to the point where uh, you, a nativity scene, I mean, obviously culturally within the past generation, you see less of them. By the way, the place where I bought this, I walked in and was like, I know you have pinatas, <laughs> but do you have a nativity scene? And like this image, uh, and in, in first century Jewish culture, Mary probably to be of marriageable age would have been 13, 14-ish. Uh, Joseph generally, first century Mediterranean, Mediterranean culture to uh, be betrothed, probably he's 18, 19. Life expectancy was about 40 years at that time, years old. So uh, they're from a small tribe that had been um, oppressed by the Romans. The general belief is that in the Galilee region at the time, uh, taxation rate would have been about 90%. So uh, we do know a lot of history from the time that this story began to circulate and to be told first as an oral tradition, and then it gained a particular resonance that literally thousands of years later, we wear odd sweaters and eggnog and wake up and open presents. So what I wanna do is I wanna give you a bit of history to the Christmas story, especially for those who've never heard it, or if you've heard it as sort of this, well, I guess we're supposed to feel good because we're gonna go to heaven. Um, I wanna give you a bit of the history behind the Christmas story and see if perhaps in going thousands of years back, we might see something about what it means to be here and now in 2017. So first, a bit of geography, and I bring your attention to the screen. <laughs> Several thousand years ago, try to imagine, there was a fairly contentious piece of real estate <laughs> right in here. Now, this land was a bit contentious because if you were in Africa and you wanted to go to Europe, you would generally travel through this region if you were going by land. If you were in Africa and you wanted to head into Asia, you would probably go through this piece of land. If you were in Europe and you wanted to go to Africa, if you were in one of these three continents and wanted to move among them, you would probably find yourself traveling through this narrow strip of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. The Via Maris was the name of the major trade route 
So this was not a distant backwater. This was a highly contentious piece of real estate that lots of people needed to get through to move goods and services. And of course, if you're trying to get there in two day prime, you would need to move through there as well. <laughs> so there was this piece of land that had been conquered by one group after another. Now, a particular Hebrew tribe at one point entered into this land, invaded it, drove out the people living there and took over. And eventually a king rose up within them who brought peace to this land. Now, next slide. This is a passage from the Hebrew scriptures, also called the Old Testament. Uh, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began king, and he reigned 40 years. So, at one point in the history of this incredibly volatile piece of land, a man came to power named David, and he ruled in this land for a long period of time, which was very, very rare in this highly violent, volatile, politically agitated climate. Now, David, the lore of David is epic. Now, perhaps you've heard about David in terms of David and Goliath, so, uh, which has now become like an archetype of archetypes, or perhaps this image of David <laughs> and Goliath, which generally makes it appear like a cartoon, like David was like a pesky little brave fella. Um, but in the story, from how we have the story, next slide, he, he chops off the giant's head. So David, uh, David's violent and ruthless, and he's known for being ruthless. In fact, later on, David wants to build a temple to his God, and his God is basically like, ah, nah, you've shed too much blood. I'll have your son do it. So when you hear King David... He's brave, he's fearless, he's also ruthlessly violent. Now, you may have also heard of David from the stories about David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was her name because of a bath. And uh, <laughs> the story goes that David's up on the roof of his palace. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He calls her up and he layeth with her. Uh, <laughs> I love this picture. <laughs> Oh, clearly illustrated for kids, but I think the lesson here is kids, don't be a creeper, right? <laughs> is that awesome? And by the way, this, look at this, look at this is the beauty of the interweb. Thou shalt not steal from the book of, like you shouldn't steal someone else's wife, and I stole that slide for the show. So <laughs> I think that all works out. And then my personal favorite, David and Bathsheba, the original motion picture soundtrack. <laughs> so the interesting thing about David, and this is actually important for understanding the history of the Christmas story. I can't believe I just got to say that. But the importance of David is the sort of mythological nature. He's larger than life. And from the first stories that were told about David, he's bigger and stronger and more fierce. And he's just this electric figure who conquers this highly contentious piece of land and rules as king. Next slide. 
Now, uh, I need to tell you one other story about David, just because this will pay off down the road. Now, uh, the king right before David was a king named Saul, who wasn't able to unify the whole thing. But Saul, uh, Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought. This is from the Bible, by the way. So that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Next. So uh, they repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. So part of the David's mythology was he was like poor and humble, but he also chopped the head off Goliath. <laughs> so you see how this works? Like he's like, he's like larger than life, but he's also every man. Now, uh, so when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins. Those were their enemies. Just reading the Bible here, by the way. In a comedy club in Los Angeles in 2017 to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Next slide. Now, uh, when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Violence? I'll do it. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. Would that be 800 skins? They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. They counted out the full number. Once again, we're just reading the Bible. But remember, these were oral cultures. The printing press is what, 1427? So you are 2,400 years before the printing press. These stories would have been told around the fire. These stories would have been told from village to village to village. And can you see how the stories that were told about David were giant, were over the top, were larger than life? Are you tracking with me on this? So David loomed massive in Hebrew consciousness. For this Jewish tribe, David, who united us, who ruled, who brought peace, who conquered our enemies, who if you needed 100, he'd get 200. <laughs> like, this is David. <laughs> uh, okay, next slide. So, by the way, if you do a quick search, of how David has been portrayed. There is Richard Gere, David. Game of Thrones, David. You know what David this is? What David is this? John Cena, David. Just, just blatant southern white guy, David. And then I love this one of David. Isn't that one great? Yeah, so David uh, and the way he's been interpreted over the years. And then let me show you uh, one passage that's absolutely massive. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. So the land does not have bloodshed. The land does not have political turmoil. The land does not have warring factions because of David in a highly contentious, politically volatile, violent period in history, this particular piece of land for a window of time because of this heroic 
king has rest. Massive, massive moment in the entire biblical narrative. Now, a couple other things that David said. By the way, Jonathan Kirsch's book on David, look at that image. It's not an amazing picture, like a completely other sort of image or idea of David. Uh, by the way, a great book on David as well. Um, and then, but notice this, David was also uh, a poet. And so he became very famous for his songs, for his playing of the lyre, for his psalms and prayers. So he's like, he's part Genghis Khan, part Karl Rove, and part Elvis. Um, <laughs> that sort of gives you the mix. But notice this, and this is huge to understanding the psyche of the Christmas story. Uh, notice the kind of lines that David would say in his poems, because his Jewish tribe had a God who they believed was the God over the whole world. So they had this belief in a culture where every tribe had their gods. They believed that their God was simply above the other gods. We'll get back to that in a minute. But notice the kind of things he would say, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Or in this psalm, uh, somewhere in here, the Lord uh, has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom, kingdom, loaded political world, rules over all. And then notice this psalm. Uh, God breaks the spirit of rulers. God is feared by the kings of the earth. And so David not only won and not only brought rest and peace, but then he created this like songbook of songs saying, our God, the tribe, the God of our tribe crushes everybody else and rules over all the other kingdoms. So that's a bit on David. Now, David died, as often happens in history. <laughs> and then everything fell apart. So next slide. This is uh, dug up by archaeologists. This is Tilgath Pilazer, also known as King Pull. Uh, actual inscription they found. Next slide. Here's a story. Uh, then Pol, that picture you just saw, king of Assyria, invaded the land. David dies. His one son makes a mess of th things. His descendants make an even greater mess of things. And within a couple of generations, they're invaded by the neighbor Assyrians. Next slide. Uh, the Babylonians then later come and take over this piece of land. And you'll notice this one. Uh, the king was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah, so the descendants of David, who then took over and were ruling, they're killed, the sons, by the Babylonian king before the king's eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. So a couple generations after David, the king's sons are killed before his eyes. Here's a Babylonian depiction of what would happen is you would go into a land, you would conquer it, you would bind the king of that land, and then you would stick a spear through his eyes into the base of his skull as a way of saying, your most powerful leader, uh, he's ours now. And you'd take out his eyes after you'd made him watch the execution of his sons. Notice this slide. Uh, this is uh, what they believe is the first uh, inscription of an Assyrian king driving Israelites, Jewish people, out 
of the land, and the plain robe was an, uh, like a tell of uh, these are Israelites who are being essentially booted from their homes. And then you have, uh, notice this line, which uh, the Assyrians come. Again, they brutally, brutally beat up on the Israelites. And then uh, Sennacherib's officers spoke, a king, spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters ridiculing the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah, which would be the God of David, will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. So how does the story go? People literally rise up, conquer David's tribe, and then say, nobody that we have conquered has resisted us, and your God won't either. So you have this massive story of David followed by oppression, followed by defeat, followed by humiliation, followed by future kings having their eyes gouged out by conquering kings. So when you get to the Christmas story, by the time, and David is roughly 1,000 BC. So you have 1,000 years of defeat and humiliation before you get to what we know to be the Christmas story. The Christmas story appears in two places in the Bible, the book of Matthew, the book of Luke. The Christmas story started as an oral tradition and probably didn't get written down or circulated till roughly the year 50, 60, 70, a good generation or two after Jesus. So the story brews for a while before it ever starts to get circulated. Now, let's go, oh yeah, here's a Roman uh, carving. And notice this, this is the Romans hauling the menorah away from Jerusalem. One more instance of David's tribe being pummeled and hauled away into exile. So if you're a good, God-fearing first century Jew, you have lived with a thousand years of shame, defeat, and humiliation because you were supposed to have the God who was above all the other gods, and yet you keep losing. Are you with me on this? So the Christmas story is about a high school girl. <laughs> Next slide. Here's a passage from the New Testament, one of the two places. How is about that line? The Christmas story is about a high school girl. So picture a 13 or 14-year-old girl. This is the story that first circulated that we get the Christmas story from. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke. Here's one of the accounts. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, her cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. So right there, the storyteller is going, hey, hey, perk up, perk up. Are you with me on this? Like the storyteller is already going, hey, 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 hey. In Greek, hey, hey, hey. Yeah. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, I love this. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Hey, God loves you. God's with you. 
what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that so weird? She's like, oh, me? Who? What? Yeah, so that's the thing. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, you can try to take the political realities out of this story. But do you think that a 14-year-old girl being told this thinks anything else than there's going to be a new David? Which means what? Because at that moment, they had been conquered by the Romans. We'll throw off the Romans. The land will have peace. The land will have rest. You can see how this story among this tribe would have had some bang to it. That this girl is told, hey, you're going to give birth to one who will essentially be the new David. Yeah, that's the origins of this story. She, however, is a very practical girl. Verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I ain't done it. <laughs> You're right. She's like, yeah, 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 but I got some really basic questions about plumbing here before any of this can go anywhere interesting. I love how odd the whole story is, and it's sort of angels, but then it's also human beings. So, so I would argue, first and foremost, the reason why this story had power and resonance in the ancient Near East Mediterranean basin is these people had lived with shame and humiliation for years and years and years. Now, next slide. Uh, Mary then, the Gospel of Luke records this song that Mary sings. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Savior, by the way, was a Roman military term. A Caesar was called a soter, a Savior. Because the Caesar had said, even though he killed everybody in his path who resisted him, that he was a Savior sent to earth to bring about peace. The peace he brought was just crushing everybody who resisted him. And he would crucify anybody who rebelled against him. So when she says... Uh, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's using loaded military propaganda. There must be some other kind of saving than the saving of Caesar and his army. And then, uh, for he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And then let me show you one other part from her prayer, and then we'll begin to sort of pull this apart. Uh, Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. So this probably peasant Jewish girl says, I don't buy the propaganda and the rhetoric of the empire. I believe there's some new thing that can be birthed. Now, there's a bit of the stories. Now, a couple of things in my highly sophisticated slide. First, I, I would argue in 2017, the Christmas story raises all sorts of interesting questions. First off, uh, whose side is God on? And if you don't find the God language helpful, um, who's right? Who claims authority? Who is that of which nothing greater can be conceived? Who's in the right here? And what you see 
in our culture endlessly is who, an argument about who can claim it, who's, who's right here, who has the moral authority, who has the prerogative. Um, in this story, this is new in human history because human history is generally told from the perspective of the victors and they record the great feats they did to crush everybody in their path. History is generally told by the winners. This story is told by people with the boot of empire on their neck. It is an upside down reading of history. The story is not about how, well, we're on God's side. It's a story about the God who is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the refugee, the immigrant, the single mom, and anybody anywhere with the boot of empire on their neck. So in a modern culture, when somebody says, well, the God is with us, that's not the right question. The question is, who is God with? And God is always with whoever has been kicked to the edges, whoever's been marginalized, whoever the system isn't working for them. And so this story is an upside down reading of history because you don't have a lot in history of the people who are losing telling the story. And this story is a radical new idea because the gods were always seen as triumphant. From the Greek pantheon to the Romans to the, the gods were always massive, powerful, and victorious. And yet this particular tribe and this girl's story about a baby being born were about the divine who is not found in the proud in palaces, but a divine who is found in the least, the lowest, and the last place you look. Are you with me on that? And so to read this story is to see that the divine will be found in your brokenness and in mine. Will be found in loss, betrayal, grief, frustration, <laughs> impotence, all the things that come our way that we don't know what to do with. This story keeps insisting, look there, because there, that's where the action will be. If we were to talk to you about your life and the key moments in your life, that have shaped you and transformed you, the moments that really altered the trajectory of your life, how many of you would be like, well, you know, one time I got a new truck, <laughs> right? Well, I went to Florida, it was pretty good weather, which well, that's impossible, but um, yeah, right. Like when we talk to you about the three or four moments that have most shaped you, how many of you would talk about cancer, divorce, failure, getting fired, loss? How many of you know what I'm talking about? And at the moment it happened, you wouldn't have wished it upon your worst enemy. And then you look back on it later, it was a hell on earth, and yet you look back on it later and you see how much good came out of that, and you find yourself wanting to say how grateful you are, but you would never use that to describe that, but that's actually the impulse that lurks just below the surface. The Christmas story is an upside down reading of history. It insists that if you wanna be on the right side, just look around for who's then kicked to the edges. Look around for who the systems aren't serving them well and they're being left out. And then go sit with them and join them and serve them and give to them. And that's where the action is. So it's an upside down reading. And then when a high school Jewish girl is told you're going to give birth to the savior and she sh shakes her fists and says, ah, 
God, you've been proud. You've been mindful of the humble state of your servant. You have brought down the mighty. This is a particular kind of language. It's the language of resistance. It's the language of somebody who's been oppressed and who's been stepped on saying the story isn't over. See, oftentimes when people talk about Christmas music, oftentimes Christmas music is like beautiful, which we just heard. There's beautiful Christmas music, but oftentimes Christmas music is a little bit like floaty. Are you with me on that? It's often sort of, oh, away in a manger. But if, but if you were to be like a, a, a Jewish girl talking, shaking her fist and talking about how the empire is coming down, that's just a little more uh, rage against the machine. Are you with me on that? To start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Yes! Did that feel good or what? So what's interesting to me is how oftentimes the Christmas story, the edges get neutered, right? It gets sort of chopped off from the waist down, but this story, this story, resistance is a spiritual act. Because resistance is the antidote to despair. Despair is, it's always going to be like this. Despair is when you find yourself rolling your eyes quicker. Despair is when you find yourself saying, I guess this is just how it is. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Resistance. Uh, despair is when you realize that cynicism has become the god of the age. Just stand back and give it a Rotten Tomatoes score. <laughs> Just stand back and observe and toss stones at everything because it hurts too much to actually get in the game. Resistance is when you say, no, it's not good enough. No, people are being left out. No, we can do better. And so resistance has always been a deeply spiritual practice because it's how you hold on to wonder and awe. Otherwise, there's generally a slippery slope of cynicism. I guess this is just how it's going to be. So everybody who's ever shaken their fist and said, let's rally, let's organize, let's march, let's ask who's been stepped on, who's been left out, let's ask who needs food, let's ask how to maybe do better tax cuts. You are taking part in a long stream that goes way back to early, early Jesus stories about the birth of Christ and a high school Jewish girl going, you have been mindful of the humble, lowly state. Are you with me on this? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes all you have is your resistance. And apparently that's enough. So I love Christmas music. I love Elvis's album. I love hymns. But let's just throw in our proper dose of the prophets of rage, shall we? Just to make sure that we're tapping in properly to what this story is always also about. Uh, by the way, we should also talk about power. Because there's a gift the Christmas story gives us. The Christmas story reminds us that all power is temporary. Because... <laughs> the Christmas story reminds us that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. 
The Christmas story reminds us that it may have been Tilgath Pilazar of the Assyrians. It might have been the Babylonians. It might have been Sauron, the son of Sennacherib. It might have been Julius Caesar of the Romans. And it might be perhaps at this moment somebody else. But if you look not at short time, but if you read history and the moment through long time, and you don't just caught, get caught up in what just got posted on Huffington Post, but you back up just a touch, you are reminded that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And whoever happens to be white-knuckling their hold on power at this moment, regardless of what they just tweeted, <laughs> kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Are you with me on this? If you have a white hanky, wave it now. <laughs> One of the gifts of the Christmas story is it causes you to back up and look at a long view of time. And when you find yourself freaking out. So we march, we rally, we serve, we activate the inner activist. We do all this. We're in the game. But we also, on the other hand, remember, it'll be somebody else in three years or like six months from now. Uh, <laughs> and it'll be somebody after that. And it'll be somebody after that. So one of the reasons why the story keeps talking about, it uses the word eternal, uses the word kingdom, uses the word the passing of the ages, is because one of the beautiful things about a story that's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And when people say, what possible relevance could a story have for our sophisticated modern world that's thousands of years old? Number one, it reminds you that whatever you're struggling and up against has been here before, and it too will pass. And so you calm down. You get angry about the right things. You shake your fists at the right things. But you also, with the other hand, remember there was this, and there'll be this, and then there'll be this, and then there'll be this. You have a long view of time, which raises uh, to me one of the most profound gifts of the Christmas story, imagination. Because when Mary is told, ah, you're going to give birth to a baby, and he will take the throne of David, I assume for a first century Jew, oh, like a new David. We're going to chop the head off some Goliaths. <laughs> right? Like, we, he'll be stronger and he'll have more F-14s. <laughs> He'll have a better drone program. He'll bomb them before they bomb us. But that's just continuing to play the same game. So you can see why large crowds followed Jesus around. You can see why they wanted to make him king. You can see why they called him son of David. You can see why when he fed the masses, they were like, oh, let's take him now and make him a king. As they were hungry for, give us a new David, because that's the only game we know how to play. They have a big king, give us a new king so he can kill that king so we can take over. So Jesus comes, doesn't enact a new David like you think of a David. He says, no, 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 I'm not going to bomb our enemies. I'm going to teach you to love them. Because if you love your enemies, in the process of doing that, the very idea of friends and enemies will dissolve. So he comes along and he says, oh, no, 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 don't get vengeance, but stand up in nonviolence to your oppressor. He says, oh, oh, no, oh, no, yeah, no, don't persecute them. 
pray for them. You cannot solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. So when the son of David comes, half of the battle for the audience is realizing this is not the son of David we were expecting. So when he comes into a village and a beggar shouts out, son of David, have mercy. And his disciples are like, ah, oh, forget that guy. Why? Because they're like, give me a seat in the new administration. Give me a seat in the cabinet. And he's like, hold on, what? Because when he says son of David, he's like, I'm a son of David, but Jesus is a new, different kind of son of David. <coughs> to me, in the age that we're living in, and with everybody's like, oh, okay, so they have their hand on the wheel right now. Well, just give us a little time, and then we'll get somebody who will crush them. Uh, that's just ping pong. You hit it to us, we hit it back. You're arrogant, you're closed-minded, you're too conservative, you're too liberal, you're too American, you're not American enough. You don't spell it right, it starts with an M. You don't have a flag, do you have a flag? And it's just, pong. remember Pong? Pong, Pong, Pong. You cannot solve a problem with the same consciousness that created it. Somebody has to say, hey, wait, 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 wait. Aren't we all human here? Let's start there. Are you with me on this? So when Jesus comes, he completely, this son grows up and everywhere David probably would have gone left, he goes right. And they kill him. Because sometimes they'll kill you, but in the process, some seeds get planted of a whole new consciousness. Which I would argue is why we're still talking about it today. Because we know we need some imagination here. And so for each of us personally, is there some jam that you're in and you're trying to fix it? Well, if I just had enough money, maybe the problem is you think that the answer to everything is money. Well, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, maybe there's some other burst of imagination that's needed that would see things in a whole different way and you'd end up find yourself playing a whole different game. And then one uh, more thing, uh, to me the power of the Christmas story is there's always the chance that something new might get birthed. Yeah, yeah. This is why you love watching kids open Christmas presents, because they haven't yet learned to use their facial muscles. So they're just like, because you learn to use your facial muscles, so you're like, oh, I like it. I'd prefer the purple one in size 13, but I like it. And we know you're faking, but a kid, just has the wonder and awe. And that's actually the thing that we all want. And the Christmas story is about birth. It's about, it's about birth. And the fact that new life can be birthed at any moment, anywhere. That marriage, that neighborhood, that business, that broken relationship, those suicidal thoughts, those self-destructive messages. The real interesting thing, if you have a spiritual vision of life, is something new could be birthed at any moment and suddenly you see things in a whole new way. And once you see, you can't unsee, and once you taste, you can't untaste. And perhaps the reason why this funny, funky, odd, subversive, dangerous story still resonates is because we generally need new birth in all sorts of ways, economically and politically and personally and relationally and culturally and 
this story keeps that alive. Could something, could something new be birthed even here in my heart, between us, between us, in our country, in our world? Could, could something new? So Christmas becomes a very, very, very potent, loaded, dangerous idea because it insists, yeah, 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 because the story is not about a triumphant king who has a new decree. It's about a high school girl who's told, hey, a whole new thing is going to be birthed through you. And she says, how? I don't understand. We'll take care of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why we're still talking about this story. So wherever you are, my prayer for you is that perhaps even now something new could be birthed, some new hope, some new vision, some new awareness, some new, there might be some different way to live. There might be some different way to deal with that extremely draining relative at Christmas dinner. Maybe there's some other way I could think about them than the standard ping pong that we're going to do year after year. Are you with me on this? And so that's why we pray, God, give me some new birth here, because otherwise I'm going to stay in the same patterns that aren't getting me anywhere. And that, to me, is why this story still resonates year after year after year, which we should do another song, should we not? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> All power is temporary. All power is temporary. All power is temporary. That brought me great joy. Thank you. So a year, uh, there is this, there is this Christmas hymn that I think is like just awesome. It's like the most badass Christmas hymn, if that's a way to talk about it. So I literally put in a request to Team Joseph, and they said they would do this song. So uh, this is O Holy Night, right? Yes, it is. Oh man, seriously. It will be. It is, and it will be.
Sisters, and that sister harmony thing does something in here. So uh, here's how it's going to work. Joseph and I, which is four of us, Joseph and I, uh, <laughs> we would love to say hi to you. We're going to be out in the courtyard, and um, I have presents for you. So seriously, I have presents for you, and I'm so excited. I'm wearing this sweater, and I'm giving out presents. That's how it's going down. So uh, I'm so glad that you came to my third annual Largo show. I'm so glad that you joined with me to get people clean water. I'm so glad we got to hear these songs and talk about these ideas that are like a bass note. To me, more and more and more, our culture feels like it's more and more treble, and it's missing the bass. Uh, and I feel like one of my jobs is to bring in the bass note and be like, oh yeah, this thing that's freaking you out, it's freaked people out for thousands of years. You're not alone. This over thing over here, we need a little more bass. Because if you get a little more perspective, a little more height, a little more history, then we can calm down and realize, oh, this thing is gonna pass, but this thing matters, so go get angry and do something about it. Are you with me on this? And that's like the discernment I feel like we're needing more than ever. So whatever your tradition or background, I hope that in some way the birth of the Jesus, the birth of the Christ, and a whole new way to be human has done something to you tonight like it's done something to me. And may grace and peace be with you now more than ever. Thank you. Thank you.